Okay, so um, for those of you who are uh, new or those of you who have short but good memories, uh, there's usually a longer handout which has the translation of the passage in which um, I highlight some things that I think are important and uh, make some notes on things. And then on a separate one-page sheet, there is a, an outline of the, the talk. And it's this one that I think you may have to, to share. Has everybody got access to, uh, to an outline? Nafisa and Hamid, are you sharing today like good, good, a good couple? Great, good. Been married only, what, 15 years? I hope that's, I hope that's working well for you. Great. Good. Everybody got one? Lovely. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come before your word, we ask that you would bless us. It's a special passage today, and justice could not be done to it, but we pray that in spite of our frailty and our weakness, that we might see Jesus and see him more clearly, to the end that we might love and obey and adore you. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today we come to the passage of the transfiguration of Jesus. It's something that is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And it was my hope that we would come across this passage on Christ the King Sunday because it portrays the glory and the, the rule of Jesus in a way that is quite unique. In fact, of all of the passages in the, in the Gospels, really there, there, there is almost none like it. Because here Jesus is transfigured or transformed, and he becomes as radiant as light. And we see him for who he is in a way that we don't normally see him in the Gospels. Normally we see him walking with his friends, we see him healing, we see him dining, but here he is on the mountain, and he is transformed. And uh, his glory is shown. And not even in the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, does he appear in this way? In the post-resurrection appearances, sometimes the disciples are um, they're a little confused. They're, they're, they're not quite sure who he is. He's obviously somewhat maybe different um, because of his resurrected body. But here, the veil is pulled back, and we see Jesus for who he is and for who the Son of God has always been in a way that we don't otherwise see. The thesis statement that I have for uh, that's on our outline, and um, it's always good for a preacher to be clear. There's an old saying that a mist in the pew is a a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. In other words, if I'm not super clear, the congregation's in the dark. So if I'm super super clear to the point of bothering you, then um, it probably means that um, there's going to be some clarity uh, around. The thesis statement is this: amid a myriad of competitors for our attention and allegiance. It is the words and actions of Jesus that are supremely authoritative. We are to listen to him alone. And if you notice on page one where we have the translation, I've actually blocked off that verse um, 5b, which is the centerpiece of the transfiguration where God declares, this is my beloved son in whom I take great pleasure. Listen to him. So if you're looking for a catchphrase for today, it would be listen to Jesus. That's not me telling you. That's God telling us. Listen to Jesus. With that, let me go to the introduction 
uh, famous reunions and sunroofs. I was trying to think how to picture this unique passage where um, the, the, the clouds of heaven are kind of pulled back and we see Jesus for who he is on the inside, now manifests on the outside, and he radiates with the glory of God because, of course, he is God incarnate. And I thought, well, you know, here on the mountain, you've got um, Moses and Elijah and you've got Jesus. And so I began to look up uh, famous reunions to see whether that might help orient us. And I looked up and found uh, some lesser well-known reunions like um, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. They were alienated for a while, but lo and behold, uh, they did some recordings together that uh, are not well known. Robert E. Lee and Ulysses Grant, uh, the, uh, the, the two enemies in the Civil War. Um, several years after the end of the Civil War, Ulysses e, Ulysses e. Grant invited Robert E. Lee to the White House, and they talked for about 15 minutes. We don't know how long Jesus communed with Moses and Elijah, but apparently Grant and, and uh, Lee had been buddies in the uh, Spanish, Mex in, the, in the Mexican War. Um, who else? Mo, Larry, and Curly and the Three Stooges. Curly had a, a stroke and they were hoping that he would revive, but he didn't. But Mo and Larry got together with Curly before um, Curly died. Jerry Lewis, uh, Dean Martin, um, Sonny and Cher. But you know, when you think about those, they just, they, they pale by comparison because uh, all of these people that we like to think of as famous are famous for rather trivial reasons. I mean, you know, it's often music or movies, uh, a bit of history in the Civil War, which is more significant, but these just completely pale by comparison to what we read about in our text today. Then I thought of the joy of driving through the Rocky Mountains on a warm day when you can either open the sunroof or pull down the, the convertible top. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in the Rockies. We went there often, and we had a, a, a 1965 Mercury Park Lane convertible. And you know, when the, when the top is down, you see those peaks and those glaciers and the sky in a way that's just captivating in such a way that you can't if you're, if you're cramped up in a, in a hard top sedan or the like. You know, neither does that really do justice. We get a little window by thinking of reunions and by thinking of sunroofs. But I think we need to orient ourselves for the reading of the Transfiguration by thinking instead of two other ways of orienting ourselves. Let me read the passage first and then suggest how we might orient ourselves to it. We've read it already, but we like to read it again and again. I'm reading from the translation on the first page. After six days... Jesus takes Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as the light. And look, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, speaking with him. But responding, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make here three booths, for you one, Moses one, and Elijah one. While he was yet speaking, look, a luminous cloud overshadowed them. And look, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I take great pleasure. 
listen to him. And when the disciples heard, they fell on their faces and were extremely afraid. And Jesus came and touching them said, be risen, don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except him, Jesus alone. I don't think a, a more revelatory event uh, that is so clear to the human eye has, uh, has ever been revealed to us as this passage. And in order to appreciate it, I think we have to take stock of where we are in our own mindset in contemporary society. I've mentioned before that it was only after the Enlightenment in the 17th century that the idea of progress entered people's minds. Progress is something that we all just kind of imbibe as though it's from our mother's milk, that things are getting better. Um, you know, th those of you who believe in, in, in human evolution can see this on a developmental scale. Um, technology has certainly demonstrated this. Every year there's a new gizmo that's coming out that's getting better and better. But there was an opponent of the Enlightenment named Jean-Jacques Rousseau who argued, nah, things are not getting all that better, morally speaking and in terms of our wellness as human beings. And he was in keeping with everybody who came before the Enlightenment. Because everybody who came before the Enlightenment didn't look at the good days as those to come, but they looked at the good days as the good old days. The days of the Roman Empire, the days of Greek civilization, the days when there were accounts of the gods who walked among people. And so um, if we want to appreciate this story, we need to kind of shed this, this misunderstanding we have, which has been proven gloriously or ungloriously by the, by the Ukrainian war, that human beings are getting no better. We are the same sinful individuals that we have always been, and morally we are bankrupt. And the good old days are 2,000 years old when Jesus walked the earth and gave the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the days of pure divine revelation, and before that, the days of the prophets. So when we listen to this story, I think it's important to sort of shirk the myth of progress and recall that much more historical look back in time for what is true and best. Because nothing is better than what we read in the New Testament. Nothing can be newer than it. The 2,000-year-old message of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his teaching, and of what we find in the Bible is timeless. It is supreme. Because it was then that God decided to become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ and for Jesus to come and teach what he taught. And the apostles here record it for us. So look back in the same way that we might look forward. So to use an analogy, um, it might be thinking uh, of um, since, we, since we kind of adore science, think in a scientific mode and imagine what it would be like to be on um, a mountain today and uh, seeing the most brilliant scientists of our age appear on a mountain together with Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein who come back from the dead and you see them conferring with this new superstar and uh, Isaac Newton and Einstein are nodding and, and, and shaking their heads approvingly of what this new superstar is doing. Or maybe Aristotle and Gottlob Frege Aristotle was the, uh, the father of, of 
contemporary logic. And it was 2,000 years before anyone came along and improved on the logic of Aristotle. His name was Gottlob Frege, and he lived in the late 19th century. Think of these masters of logician, Aristotle who dominated for 2,000 years, and then Frege who came along and set the stage for a lot of what's going on in, in logic and physics and mathematics today. Looking at this new superstar, and again, nodding and approving and saying, yes, there's kind of a holy huddle where they collaborate and they point forward to this new superstar. So it's more of an endorsement than it is of a reunion. Clearly, the sunroof effect is there. We've seen Jesus transformed. But the whole point of the passage is to clarify who Jesus is and also to clarify who Simon Peter is. And that takes us to the orientation that has to do with what took place in the light of Jesus's time. Number two, under orientation. And at this point, I just want to remind us of where we are in Matthew's gospel. There's the question of Peter. Peter, after all, occurs at the beginning and towards the middle of this passage. And that's because Peter has been elevated in chapter 16 to being the one who is, receives the keys of the kingdom of heaven and uh, the one who is told that um, what um, has been bound and what has been loosed under his teaching and preaching will have been bound or will have been loosed in heaven. So the question that enters the reader's mind as we come to Matthew chapter 17 is, what about Peter? I mean, he's obviously really important, but, but how important is he? We got a little warning that he might not be as important as we might think because Jesus rebuked him last week and said, get behind me, Satan. You're an obstacle for me because you have the things of people in mind and not the things of God. But here in verse 1, Peter is at first of the line, and he appears with two others. And these three disciples, we know, were particularly important to Jesus and formed a kind of a special circle. Each of them was given a second name. And so there's Peter at the beginning, which is fine, and James and his brother John. This is the nucleus of the disciples, and they are led up, and they are the ones who witness this. It is for their benefit. Because in verse 3, it says, and look, there appeared to them not to Jesus, but there appeared to them Moses and Elijah speaking with him, that is, with Jesus. So one of the questions in our mind as we come to this passage is, how important is uh, Simon Peter? But also, I think we're led to review the status of Jesus, because we were told in the passage last week that at the very moment that Jesus acknowledged that he was the Messiah, this glorious coming king and all kinds of visions come up about, oh, he's going to sit on glorious thrones. He's going to rule. He's going to destroy the Romans. We're going to sit there and, uh, and just bask in the glow of this national reign. And Jesus drops this bombshell. No, I'm going to die the death of a common criminal. I'm going to get beat up by my enemies. I'm going to suffer. And I want you to do the same. And at that point, you can imagine people wondering, has Jesus got this right? I mean, very few people saw that coming. And so this passage is designed to address the status of Peter and also, in a sense, the status of Jesus, as if he needed it. Well, to some people's mind, he does. I mean, Matthew's audience was originally a Jewish Christian audience, and there are Jews today. Uh, in fact, uh, you, you sort of define yourself as a Jew by someone who says, I'm a Jew, but I certainly do not accept that Jesus was the Messiah. So you can imagine the questions going on in people's minds, and they would have included, 
where in the Bible does it say that the Messiah needs suffer? My answer to that question, apart from the suffering servant figure of Isaiah, who was not messianic, but whom Jesus embodied, is that they are portrayed in the Psalms. And you've heard me talk about that before. But the disciples didn't understand. No Jew that we know in the first century understood, but Jesus did, and it's since been vindicated. And what about the need for Elijah to come first and restore all things? That occupies our minds in the second passage, in the second portion, because at the end of the book of Malachi, it says that Elijah was going to come and restore all things before the Messiah came. And so the question is of the status of Elijah, who appears in the passage. And we'll talk a little bit more about Elijah in a minute. And the bottom line question really is, and think of people who didn't have their New Testament at the time, they're followers of Jesus. He's got some fresh ideas, some strange ideas, but of course, then we have the Old Testament. And so who do we listen to when what Jesus says seems to differ from what the Old Testament says? And so the bottom line question of this passage is, where do we go to get God's perspective? It's underlined in your outline. Who holds the keys to that? With whom does the buck stop when it comes to thus says the Lord. And so with that in mind, we have the story of the transfiguration. Um, let me just say in passing, and I won't, I won't dwell on this, but um, it may have been obvious uh, to you as we were reading that um, it's not like we're divorcing ourselves from the Old Testament. The, the, the message really is, is that the buck stops with Jesus, but he is in continuity with the Old Testament. And so the Mount of Transfiguration is recalling Mount Sinai. And um, Jesus meets with these two other people who received divine revelation on Mount Sinai, Moses and the Ten Commandments, and then Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, um, when he was told that um, the Lord's voice was not in the thunder um, and in the moving of the earth, uh, but in that still small voice. So, um, um, and if you want, let's just take a second and uh, look at one of the parallels that you'll find. Um, and... Here's your, here's your test at your ability to share with your father-in-law, Gary, um, on page six. Parallels between Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses on Mount Sinai. Matthew's description of the Transfiguration is not meant to tell us that Jesus is new and different. He's, the, he's different, but he's the same. He's in continuity. And so Moses and Elijah endorsed the teaching of Jesus. And in God's providence, the setting also endorses the teaching of Jesus. Both occur on a high mountain. Uh, compare Exodus 24 and 34, where Moses is on the high mountain. It happens after six days, which compares to the cloud covering the mountain for six days. Of course, after six days gives you seven too, which is perfect, right? So it's as though we've reached perfection here on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are three privileged individuals mentioned in the transfiguration story, Peter, James, and John. There were also three privileged individuals noted on Mount Sinai, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. A cloud descends and covers the mountain in both cases. Look at this one. This is kind of interesting because I'm sure if you were Peter, James, and John going up the mountain and you heard that Moses was gonna come, you'd think, oh, I get this. Moses' skin is gonna shine. Moses doesn't shine worth a darn. It's Jesus 
in his whole being who becomes trans, he, he, he becomes a, just luminous like the sun. So the face of Jesus shines like the sun, whereas the skin of Moses uh, face shone. The voice speaks from the cloud in 17.5. Yahweh calls out to Moses from the cloud in 24.16 of Exodus. The disciples are terrified, and Israel is afraid when they see Moses. The disciples are terrified when they um, hear God's rebuke. But the disciples are not terrified, or at least they're told not to be terrified in verse 7. When Jesus, after God scares the wits out of them, says, rise up, don't be afraid. And Jesus comes along and he helps them up. And he is a very human, supreme, authoritative figure. So we have the picture of Sinai and the Exodus setting. Back to our outline, if we will. First of all, let's look at the transfigure on the mountain, the transfiguration on the mountain. Who is in charge here? Verses 1 to 8. And then we'll spend less time, much less time, in verses 9 to 13, because the question is more pertinent to Jewish Christian dialogue uh, than it is to us as, um, as Christians, as important as Jewish Christian dialogue is. So let's look at the story of authority then in verses 1 to 8 of our passage. Well, we've got a number of different characters here. It is though it's kind of a uh, people. Who should we give authority to? And first up is Peter. And gosh, he has authority. We saw last week that Jesus renamed this fellow Rocky. And in giving him this new name, Peter, he was assigning him quite likely, not for sure, but I think quite possibly, he was assigning him a new name in the same way that Abram was assigned the new name Abraham when he became the father of a covenant community. He was assigned a new name in the way that um, Jacob was assigned a new name Israel when he became the father of the Jewish people. And now here is Rocky. He is um, a foundation stone of the church. And when you think of Peter's influence in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, it's hardly surprising that Peter is given priority. But Peter's prominence comes from his orthodox affiliation with the Messiahship and the identity of Jesus, nothing in and of himself. And it's not Peter's church, it's Jesus's church. Peter doesn't build the church, Jesus builds his church. But Peter is a rock in that process. So let's keep a little monitor on Peter. And we recognize too that it's not just Peter, but James and his brother John also uh, had, um, were part of an inner circle of Jesus. He leads them up on a high mountain by themselves. So it's Peter, James, John, and Jesus. That sets the stage. Now who steals to the front of the stage? Upon whom does the spotlight not only shine, but shine brilliantly? Verse two, he was transformed before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as the light. Doesn't that remind you of Moses? Ah, sort of. And look, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah speaking with him. That's all we hear, Moses and Elijah, the two most significant prophetic figures in the Old Testament. Jesus steals the show, takes the spotlight. Oh, and yes, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah speaking with him. And what's worth asking, why Moses and Elijah are mentioned here? And I'm just going to uh, just take a, a bit of a, a, a deviate from the, from the outline uh, briefly. Um, it's most likely that Moses and Elijah are here speaking with him because Moses and Elijah represent respectively the first third of the Old Testament and the second third of the Old Testament. Moses is associated with the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are of preeminent authority, even to this day among the Jews. There is nothing more authoritative than Torah. The Jewish man that we listened to a few weeks ago when we were talking about, um, about um, Jews and um, their, their opposition to Jesus said, if you can show me Jesus in the Torah, every Jew I know will follow. So you have Moses as representing the, the five books of Moses and, and the Old Testament, and Elijah is representing the prophets as well. We don't know this when we look at our own Old Testaments, but in the Jewish Bible, very briefly, it was divided into three sections. Uh, the law, headed by Moses, the prophets, and then the writings. And the third section was still kind of in flux at the time of the New Testament, called the writings. And so here you have Moses, part one of the Old Testament, Elijah, part two of the Old Testament. And who else is there? Jesus. And it's quite possible that Jesus here is understood to be the figurehead of the completion of the Old Testament. So Moses and Elijah basically equal the Old Testament. Now, it's true they both appeared on a mountain and received revelation. It's true that there are traditions about them also lighting up, uh, Elijah in a Jewish tradition and Moses in the Bible. And here they are speaking with Jesus. And here comes the collaborative element. You don't, uh, if, if uh, Isaac Newton and Einstein think that the new scientist is a schmuck, they probably uh, will not be talking enthusiastically and nodding their heads and huddling together and commending him. So the endorsement of Moses and Elijah points to the authority of Jesus. Then we get back to good old Peter, and you can't help but wonder whether there were people in the early church who gave more credit to Peter, um, like I believe our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters do to this day, um, the primacy of Peter. Because here again, we get a reminder that there's nothing infallible about Peter and the things that he says. But responding, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I'm really glad that you are here. If you wish, I'll make three booths. One for you, so he gets the priority right. You're first, Jesus. Moses can have one, and Elijah can have one. Well, there's a lot of debate about what's going on here, and it might be that this happened at the Feast of Tabernacles, and, uh, and um, Peter was wanting to be helpful. But as I said last week, Peter's byword, if he were uh, a teacher of, um, of marksmanship, would be, Ready, fire, aim. Uh, he jumps the gun here. And um, what happened at this stage in the Old Testament, when Moses appeared and was shining with his skin, the people were terrified. But Peter struts up and says, hey, I got an idea. It's really nice that you're here. Let me help you out. And he wants to build a booth for them and for Moses and for Elijah. And now comes a word which tells us where the locus of authority lies. In the first instance, it allies with God, which isn't surprising. He yet speaking, look, a luminous cloud overshadowed them, and look, a voice out of the cloud saying, listen to me, I'm God. No, this is my beloved son, in whom I take great pleasure. Listen to me and him? No, listen to Peter and me and him. No, listen to him. You know, some people have argued that, um, you know, you're leaving God out of the picture if you focus on the teachings of Jesus. Well, if you focus on the teachings of Jesus, you're focusing on the teachings of God. And here God gives his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus says. And he says, you want to know my mind? You want to know where the buck stops? Listen to him. 
Frederick Bruner in his commentary notes how we Christians often like to do things for Jesus in the name of the church. That's always a good thing to do is do things for Jesus in the name of the church. But we got the cart before the horse. Bruner reminds us that the first thing that we need to do is not to do stuff for Jesus. That's what Peter tried to do. We listen to the word of God and we listen to what Jesus says. And then we take that as our marching orders. Your ideas are not so hot. My ideas are not so hot. This brilliant new idea about how we're going to change the church or about what we should change ethically or otherwise is all about as worth it as Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're preoccupied with the things of humans. God comes and says, listen to Jesus. The word listen, of course, means hear, but it also means to obey. When the disciples heard, they fell on their faces and were extremely afraid. They're probably afraid of God, but the pointer was to Jesus. And look what the one to whom God points does in verse 7. Jesus came. He approaches them like he did on the mountain in, uh, in, the, in the occasion of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28. He comes and he touches them and he says, code language, be risen, don't be afraid. And then lifting up their eyes, the disciples saw once more what? Moses, Elijah, God. They saw no one except him, Jesus alone. My friends, Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is God. And the teachings of Jesus are where the buck stops. We ought to listen to Jesus. Authority then lies with Jesus. What about authority now? We're going to switch gears and just talk a little bit about um, post-modernity. Ever since the end of World War II, there's been an idea that has prevailed in our culture that we don't need one dominant meta-narrative. We don't need one dominant authority in our culture. In fact, um, if there is a multiplicity of authorities, then no one can exercise power over another. You see, at the end of the Second World War, you came out of um, fascist regimes where they realized, boy, if you have all of the power in the hands of one person, look what happens. Look what's happening again in Russia. I mean, uh, Putin with his imperialist ideas is just eliminating the power of 10 million people. And not because it's going to win him the war, it seems to be simply out of spite. You defy me and I'll knock your brains out. So in a way, the postmodern movement I want to suggest, um, and here I've actually skipped down, I haven't followed my own outline, I'm now at authority B, responding to most postmodern secular authority. I'll come back to the Christian in a minute, sorry, but we're, we're talking about postmodernity. And in a way, it kind of works, doesn't it? We're all nervous about too much power being in one person's hands. And um, if there is diversity, no one can dominate. And that, that kind of works pretty well in our culture. So the idea of Jesus having the sole authority in the lives of Christians and in the lives of humanity, maybe given the lessons of history, should sound scary. Pause to think. That's probably true, except what does this guy teach? Love your enemies. You know, if somebody wants your shirt, give them another. Uh, forgive others. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
In other words, this sole authoritarian kind of one-size-fits-all rule, it's all in the hands of Jesus, would be dangerous were it not for Jesus being who Jesus is, the revelation of God. So this is good news. So although uh, postmodernity might have its place in terms of um, sort of putting uh, human powers in perspective, and there are advantages and disadvantages to postmodernity, Christians will say that, there are people on both sides, and there's good and bad in both, but we need not worry about giving sole authority to Jesus as the church or as a society. Uh, it makes more sense in a church given the fact that we are um, in allegiance to Jesus, but what's, what's good for the church is good for the society as well. So we need not worry about authority lying solely in the hands of a Jesus who teaches and is what he is. He died for you. He didn't come into the world to condemn sinners, but to save them, that they might have life. This is all good news, my friends. What about authority now with Jesus and us, the Christians? And here I'm at section B-A. I think if we go back and look at the litany of alternatives to the authority of Jesus, we can find something of a reflex in our own day. Number one, super disciples, Peter and James and John. They did have an inside track in a way. And I have to tell you, I am worried for some of you. As I worry for myself at times when I feel the same way, it's possible to be a Christian who thinks that you are, you have kind of an inside track on the will of God. You know, you might read your Bible this morning, but God spoke to me and told me to do this today. And there's, there's kind of an idea that we can have a private bit of access to the revelation of God that's independent of Scripture. And as I've said before, I'm not denying that there are times when you might feel as though God has spoken to you directly. God's capable of doing that. But to take that on as your modus operandi is Peter-like. And there's only one authority, and that's Jesus. And you can say, yeah, Jesus told me. But I'm telling you, I can say Jesus told me because I'm reading it in Holy Scripture. You can't say that Jesus told you to buy whole wheat bread at the grocery store because it's in the Bible. So be very, very careful. It's an occasion for pride. It's an occasion for arrogance. It's an occasion for self-righteousness. And there are some super disciples up there who make you feel inferior because God speaks to them. God doesn't speak to me. God speaks to his church through his word, and it's the teachings of Jesus alone as are enshrined in scripture that are authoritative. And thank God if you feel as though you've been given direction by God in one way or another. But test it out. Be very careful. And don't be a lone wolf. Check with friends. Wait for confirmation. After all, how do you know? Did God open the door or did Satan set a trap? Beats me. Really. This is part of Reformed theology, and I think it's really worth underscoring. We know God's will as it's revealed in Scripture, and none of us has a corner on the ways and will of God speaking through our minds. They remain fallen and fallible. Watch out. The Old Testament alone, well, we've seen times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus seems to have been at odds with what's taught in the Old Testament. And here we see that there's continuity and discontinuity. I mean, Moses and Elijah come and say, touche Jesus, we are on board with you. So there's continuity, but the buck still stops with Jesus. And Christians affirm the authority of the Old Testament because it's every bit as much the word of God as the New Testament. But we read the Old Testament and we interpret it at the cue of Jesus, who is after all, the incarnation of God. And as we've seen all along, the super Moses, the super prophet, the super Isaiah, the super Jeremiah, 
uh, the Spirit of the living God. And so we have our Bibles, and we need to follow our Old Testaments and our New Testaments. And then third and finally, it's certainly not the Pope. I mean, we, there are godly popes, and um, offices in the church ought to be respected, but there is um, no biblical warrant for the idea that the primacy that was given to this Peter individual is also given to uh, sort of a, an office that's occupied by the person who's the Bishop of Rome. That doesn't mean we can't have good inter interfaith dialogue. Uh, there may come a day when the church is united and the, the Pope has a place, but um, papal infallibility is um, not biblical. Second and finally, let me just do honor to verses 9 to 13, and we'll do that very quickly on the way down um, the mountain. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell no one the vision until the time the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. Here Jesus is putting a gag order on this Messiah business again because people think it means what it doesn't mean. And then the disciples come up with a question, and it's a fair one. Why therefore do the scribes say that it's necessary for Elijah to come first? Responding, he said, and I've added quoting Malachi here because without that recognition that Jesus is here quoting Malachi, it sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself in verses 11 and 12. Responding, he said, quoting Malachi, quote, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Old Testament says. And it's true. But notice what he says in verse 12. But I say to you, this reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? You have heard that it was said. This is good and authoritative so far as it goes, but here's the real deal. I'm telling you how it's best understood. And so Jesus goes on in verse 12, and he says, But I say to you that Elijah came already, and they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they wished. And of course, he's speaking of John the Baptist. And then comes another warning, as if uh, it's not going to go away, and Jesus meant what he said, and God has now affirmed it. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer through them, the religious leaders. It's God's will. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's affirmed by Moses and Elijah that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and also the suffering servant of God, and his path is to the cross. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. Now, there's a, um, a, a, point of, a point of contention here in terms of the interpretation of Malachi, and I've just got a little appendix under issues there that you can, you can look at if you're interested in um, um, the dialogue that might arise between you and what I hope are Jewish friends of yours about the role of Elijah in the coming of God's kingdom. But at the Passover meal, uh, there's still uh, a time when at the Passover Seder, they stand up and a door is open for Elijah. So they, they expect Elijah to come in the future. And there are some Christians who believe that there will be another appearance of Elijah in association with the conversion of the Jews. But that's a, a kind of a point of controversy that, that needs not be addressed. The church listens to Jesus. His words, his actions. And he's headed to the cross to die for your sins. Praise be to God. Amen.